Is there any justification for Israel's ongoing blockade against Gaza and the recent violence against protesters at the border fence? Could a boycott of Israel's diamond industry meaningfully impact the application of its apartheid policies? How did Jews the world over go from resisting a political movement known as Zionism to embracing it as part of their identity? Does the administration of Benjamin Netanyahu represent a fundamental change in the Zionists' expansionist policies, or is it a natural progression of an existing program? What are the forces driving international support for Israel and passivity in the face of that state's war crimes? On this week's Global Research News Hour, at a time when violence in the Israel-Palestine conflict is making major world headlines, we'll take a closer look at some of the dynamics playing out in the region with three guests. We'll hear from Ron Russo, one of the Canadians participating in this year's Freedom Flotilla to Gaza. We'll hear from Palestine solidarity activist and writer Sean Clinton about the role of blood diamonds in perpetuating Israeli violence. And we'll get a historical perspective from Université de Montréal history professor and author Yaakov Rab. On this week's program, Violence with Impunity, the Unending Tragedy of the Israeli Occupation. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 8th, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gaikin, the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territory of the Nihiawak in the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. A bipartisan majority of the House adopted the National Defense Authorization Act on May 24th with a vote of 351 to 66. The bill now moves to the Senate. If the Senate version ultimately includes the Ellison Amendment as well, Congress would send a clear message to Donald Trump that he has no statutory authority to militarily attack Iran. This becomes particularly significant in light of Trump's May 8th withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal. That withdrawal was followed by a long list of demands by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, which could set the stage for a U.S. attack on Iran. That comes from the article... In Unanimous Vote, House Says No Legal Right to Attack Iran by Professor Marjorie Cohn, post-June 7th, originally appearing at Truthout. The killing of Razan Najjar, the 22-year-old medical volunteer shot by an Israeli sniper in Gaza on Friday, is the latest tragic reminder of the outrageous and indiscriminate brutality being meted out under orders from the Netanyahu government. The silence, or worse, support, for this flagrant illegality from many Western governments, including our own, has been shameful. Instead of standing by while these shocking killings and abuses take place, they should take a lead from Israeli peace and justice campaigners to demand an end to the multiple abuses of human and political rights Palestinians face on a daily basis, the 11-year siege of Gaza, the continuing 50-year occupation of Palestinian territory, and the ongoing expansion of illegal settlements. 
President Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital city and move the U.S. embassy there in violation of international agreements has demonstrated that the U.S. has no claim to be any kind of honest broker for a political settlement of the Israel-Palestine conflict. A sustainable, just peace between Israelis and Palestinians that recognizes the rights and security of all and puts an end to the continuing dispossession of the Palestinian people is an interest we all share in the Middle East and far beyond. That comes from the article, The West is Turning a Blind Eye to the Gaza Massacre, by Jeremy Corbyn, posted June 7th, originally appearing on Jerry Corbyn's Facebook page. The debate over free speech on campus to allow conservative voices is much in the media. But the desire of many of America's normally liberal Jews to curtail any and all criticism of Israel is hardly mentioned at all, even though it is in many respects far more serious an attack against the First Amendment as support of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions or BDS movement would be enshrined in federal legislation with draconian penalties attached. Two leading Jewish senators, Ben Cardin of Maryland and Chuck Schumer of New York, are the driving forces behind the so-called Israel Anti-Boycott Act, which is continuing to make its way through Congress. It was introduced by Cardin and quickly attracted a number of co-sponsors and supporters, many of whom were predictably Republicans. The irony inherent in the bill comes from the fact that both Cardin and Schumer are solidly liberal in their voting records to include support of issues generally regarded as protective of constitutional rights and liberties. Theirs might reasonably be considered reliable votes whenever the Bill of Rights is challenged, but when it comes to Israel, they are quite willing to flip 180 degrees. That comes from the article, They Disagree on Everything But Israel, by Philip Giraldi, posted June 7th, originally appearing at American Free Press. Argentina's cancellation of a friendly against Israel because of Israeli attempts to exploit the match politically is likely to reverberate far beyond the world of soccer and spotlights the risks of Israeli efforts to persuade the international community to recognize Jerusalem as its capital. The Argentinian decision suggests that despite the fact several countries, including East European nations, are debating whether to follow U.S. President Donald J. Trump's decision earlier this year to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of the Jewish state and move the U.S. embassy to the city, Israel is likely to find it difficult to capitalize on the U.S. move in ways that convincingly project widespread international support. Even worse, the decision illustrates that efforts to force recognition could backfire. The Argentinian move has buoyed the grassroots boycott divestment sanctions or BDS campaign that seeks to isolate Israel in nonviolent defense of Palestinian rights after Israel has made countering the movement one of its top foreign policy objectives. The cancellation of Israel's friendly match with Argentina is a boost to the red card Israel campaign, which has called on FIFA to expel Israel as it expelled apartheid South Africa due to its violations against Palestinian football and its disregard for FIFA statutes, BDS said in a statement. That comes from the article. Israel scores painful own goal in run-up to the World Cup. Argentina cancels friendly match with Israel by James M. Dorsey, posted June 7th, originally appearing on the Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer blog. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. In the past two months, the world has witnessed a flare-up of violence along the Israel-Gaza border, resulting in the deadliest days of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict since the 2014 Gaza War. The Palestinian Great March of Return, organized by independent activists but backed by Hamas and other major factions within the Gaza Strip, was intended as a demand that Palestinian refugees and their descendants be allowed to return to areas from which they were expelled during the creation of the State of Israel. It was also a protest of the decade-long blockade of the Gaza Strip by Israel and Egypt, and of the decision to move the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. On the Gaza side, over 13,000 people were injured since March 30th, when the campaign began. More than 120 killed. The dead and injured have included journalists and medics, including Canadian Dr. Tarek Lubani, and a 21-year-old Palestinian nurse named Razan Ashraf Najjar, who died on Friday, June 1st. No Israeli defense forces have yet been killed, even though Israeli officials have defended and praised IDF actions as self-defense against planned attacks by Hamas against Israel. Palestinian resistance has been motivated by a blockade of Gaza, which has had devastating effects on the health of the population, especially coming on top of two violent assaults on Gaza over the course of a decade. A number of citizens around the world have responded to the need to assist. One tactic is to non-violently penetrate the blockade on the ocean side through what is called a freedom flotilla. So far, none of these vessels have been able to make it to shore successfully without being intercepted by Israeli defense forces. Ron Russo is one of the Canadians taking part in this year's Freedom Flotilla to Gaza. He's a postal worker, president of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, Whitehorse Local, Indigenous Vice President of the Canadian Labour Congress, a father and a grandfather, and he lives in the traditional territory of the Karkros Takish First Nation in Yukon. He's been travelling on board the flotilla ship Al-Oda and joined us by phone after a stop at the port at La Rochelle, France. Could I ask you what inspired you to take part in this action? Well, for me, it's a... It's a it's a human rights issue. It's a human rights issue as as uh, we see what's going on with with the uh, people, the, the lack of food, you know, the the land prison where you need a pass to come and go, um, where you know unemployment's at fifty, at uh, less than fifty percent, and it's a struggle. You know, there's there's uh, aid. Eighty percent of people are living off of aid. The uh, the water is limited. The um, Electricity is limited to one to two hours a day. It could be in the middle of the night for cooking. And it's all being limited by um, the, the Israelis. So uh, we, we feel that uh, you know it, it's a human rights issue. And then for me, as, as an indigenous person, is when we look at the United Nations uh, definition of um, indigenous, is they fall into it as well, right? So, you know, we're all people of of Mother Earth, and we all need to be taking care of one another, and we need to make sure that we know what's going forward. So I think it's really important and that we need to take care of one another and make sure that we're all being respected. 
Hmm. Now, it, it just so happens, I mean, you made the decision to take part in this before uh, the, the, the recent flare-up of violence along the Israeli border. So I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about some of the statements you're hearing uh, by Israeli officials and their supporters who attempt to justify the actions at the border fence and in maintaining the blockade as, as necessary self-defense against terrorists. Right. You know, uh, for us going in, if it's a little bit terrifying, I'm actually not going to be going all the way in. I'm going to be going two more stops, and then the boat will continue with, with new people getting on and off. So I'll be spending three weeks on the boat, but I will not be going all the way into the Gaza. But as far as what's just happened recently is, you know, is what it was is there was a, um, a, a nurse that was shot, somebody that was providing aid, um, with her hands in the air, is my understanding from the news reports that we've seen. Uh, then there was retaliation. And uh, so all of a sudden it ended up being that it was their, their fault and that they, meanwhile, is, is, you know, the uh, tensions are high, and I think that that was just one more push to be um, getting, to be edging them on, to be uh, having some type of recourse. And the recourse was, was swift, and it uh, unjust. Hmm. Now, you, you just pointed out the, the parallels between uh, Israelis' uh, treatment of the Palestinian population and Canada's treatment of the uh, indigenous population here. I mean, both cases you're talking about indigenous populations. Did the, the parallels, um, what, what do those inf parallels say to you in the midst of a, of a Canadian government that makes a lot of uh, talk about reconciliation well you know as, as we when we look back at history is we look at, at where we were in the past you know we ended up being uh, put into reservations we needed a similar path to leave um you know then we ended up with the residential schools and even today there's still many issues for indigenous children in in canada you know with uh with less than a third of the amount of money going to uh of the per child for indigenous uh, children. But, you know, as we, when we look back at history and the government of what's going on, as, you know, as we, we saw um, uh, Pierre Trudeau uh, sit down and come up with the white paper, which was to um, pretty much uh, stimulate all of the indigenous people in Canada. So now we have a his son that, that's in, and Justin, you know, bought up a... a Pipeline and you know indigenous people in Canada are infuriated with what's going on because you know we have uh, an agreement with uh, um, pardon me with the uh, uh, Kinder. Oh, sorry. Oh, oh, go ahead. So I thought you may have been talking about the uh, the uh, the buyout of the Kinder Morgan, but you're you're talking about yeah. 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 So it, it, it has a lot to do with the bio of the Kinder Morgan and and the um, informed consent. And uh, as we've seen, as the indigenous people are quite upset about what's happening across the country, and you know, is stepping up and and, it, and pushing it forward. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, you spoke in in very ge general and and uh, appropriate terms about uh, the parallels there. Uh, you know. Uh, the indigenous populations of both Israel and, and Canada. I, I'm wondering if there is 
maybe a specific incident or a specific example that sticks out in your mind when you reflect at the parallels between, uh, you know, maybe what's happened to somebody in Palestine, in Gaza, and, and what's happening on, uh, in indigenous territory here in Canada? Uh, here in Canada is, you know, is when we look at what's going on inside of uh, Palestine, of you know, the lack of clean drinking water, and we look at the, uh, the, the, the lack of food. And when we look at Canada, you know, we, we still have almost 140 uh, First Nations without clean drinking water. We still have, inside of northern Canada, it costs four to five times more to feed your family than it does inside of the south. So I, I think that, that the government's made lots of promises, but we still have to see action. Mm-hmm. So, um... I want to thank you for for sharing uh, these thoughts on the uh, as you are preparing to to go further along this uh, unique action. Uh, is there anything else you you'd like to say to our listeners uh, about this uh, uh, about the action or or about what's happening to Gazans right now that uh, you'd like to express? Yeah, you know, I think that people really need to take a look away from the mainstream media, especially what's coming out of uh, you know the. Uh, Israeli camps, uh, some of the American news, and they need to take a look about what's actually happening and look beyond the, the frontline stories and look at this as a as a human rights issue of people, you know, people's children, um, people's uh, grandchildren, people's parents. This is these are people that that this is happening to, and it's not as they say about uh, people who are um, terrorists. You know, most of these people are. University people who children and uh, that are getting up and standing up for what's happening to them inside this land prison and being shot for it and called terrorists. So I think that we need to really look at the definition of what people are calling terrorists. It's been a privilege and a pleasure speaking with you, Ron. Good luck on your journey and all the best. Thank you very much. That was Ron Rousseau. He's one of the Canadians taking part in the 2018 Freedom Flotilla to Gaza on board the ship Al-Ada. He joined us from La Rochelle, France, on Thursday, June 7th. For more details on this year's flotilla and how you can help, please visit the site freedomflotilla.org. And Canadian listeners can also visit the site canadaboatgaza.org. According to Palestine solidarity activist Sean Clinton, the massacres being committed in Gaza over the last few weeks could have been prevented if human rights watchdogs had spoken up about it at an April OECD forum on responsible mineral supply chains in Paris. Clinton was alluding to the Israeli state's lucrative diamond industry, which he wrote about at length in a May 23rd article posted at Global Research. We got in touch with Mr. Clinton at his home in Limerick, Ireland, to elaborate on the state's dependence on blood diamonds. Israel is a major player in the global diamond industry, and uh, they were talking there about mineral supplies, responsible mineral supplies, and that was the perfect opportunity to raise the issue of an OECD member, uh, a leading member in, in the global diamond industry, that was using revenue from the diamond industry to fund its war crimes and crimes against humanity in Gaza, and nobody saw fit to open their mouths about it. If they had done at that stage and raised the question about the ethical provenance of diamonds that are cut and polished in Israel, I think Israel would have had to think twice about their actions in Gaza, and we may not have had the massacre on, that, uh, on the 14th of May that subsequently followed. So could you talk then about, the, just a little bit about this, the background of the, the diamond industry in Israel? It's a 
hugely important industry. In fact, it's so important to the Israeli economy that uh, whenever, whenever you study uh, Israeli economic statistics, it's always mentioned uh, their exports, excluding diamonds, because the diamonds are so far more valuable than any other sector of the Israeli economy that to include them, to talk about them in the same uh, graphs or publications, it would skew the publication so much. And this is a factor. This is a fact that been uh, mentioned in, in a recent article in Haaretz, I think it said, about the, about, the, about the diamond industry. Israel's diamond industry accounts for uh, about 30% of their manufacturing exports. It's worth, it's far more valuable than their electronics or their pharmaceuticals uh, or any other sector of the economy, but yet nobody is focusing on this. Uh, and for good reason, Israel never mentions their diamond industry because they know well that it's uh, the Israeli brand uh, brand image is, is purely toxic for the, for the diamond brand image. So you never hear mention uh, of their burgeoning diamond exports. They're always on about their electronics and their high tech. But in fact, their diamond exports are far more valuable than the, than the electronics or, or the, on either high tech or pharmaceutical exports. Hmm. Now, there's been processes in place to try to control or, or limit the amount of uh, proceeds that are generated uh, by you know, what's been called uh, conflict diamonds to prevent the you know, the the earnings from the diamonds uh, getting into uh, you know, promoting human rights aggression. So, uh, could could you maybe help us first of all explain what you mean by blood diamonds as opposed to conflict diamonds? And well, yeah, it might be worth explaining that for for your listeners. Uh, in two thousand and three, this uh, Kimberley process came into being. It's a system of self-regulation introduced by the diamond industry in response to growing public uh, rejection of, of diamonds because of the link between uh, diamond industry and uh, bloody civil wars, particularly in Africa. So the uh, diamond industry was forced to, re to react and to uh, introduce regulations to control the... To, they were supposed to eliminate the trade in blood diamonds. But what they did, in fact, was rather than banning all blood diamonds, they came up with this new term called conflict diamonds. And the, 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 the definition of a conflict diamond is very restrictive. It applies only to rough diamonds, first art, and it's those rough diamonds that are used by rebel groups to fund violence against legitimate governments. Therefore, straight away, all cut and polished diamonds are unregulated, totally unregulated, and rough diamonds that fund uh, rogue regimes guilty of gross human rights violations are also unregulated. So what the diamond industry does then, it keeps talking about conflict diamonds, conflict diamonds, all our diamonds are conflict-free, they say then as well, and completely ignoring the fact that other diamonds that aren't conflict diamonds but are in fact blood diamonds because they're funding rogue regimes guilty of human rights violations, such as the regime in Zimbabwe and the regime in Angola, which also uses uh, revenue from diamonds to fund uh, gross human rights violations there but because those human rights violations are, are perpetrated by government forces, their diamonds are excluded from the regulations, just the same as Israel's diamonds are excluded from all regulations because the violence in Israel is being committed by government forces. So the jewellery industry claims that these diamonds are conflict-free based on the fact that they, are, that they are in compliance with the Kimberley process, which only bans conflict diamonds, diamonds that fund rebel groups guilty of human rights violations. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a massive scam, and it's, it's uh, something that, uh, that CEOs in particular of public companies such as 
Anglo America, which owns the beers, and uh, Cygnus is, is one of the biggest uh, jewelry companies in America and, and Europe. And uh, these companies are all selling diamonds. They're major buyers of diamonds from Israel, and they're selling these diamonds, claiming that they're conflict-free, simply because they are, these diamonds are in compliance with the Kimberley process. So as, as I said, the Kimberley process only bans diamonds that fund rebels. It doesn't ban diamonds that fund rogue regimes. Mm. So, yeah, it doesn't, it sounds like this is almost like the international criminal court where you only prosecute African uh, leaders, but you don't That's prosecute the United States for Iraq situation. or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> they, they want everybody to focus on Africa, 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 and, and uh, the rough diamonds in Africa. Don't ignore the, the cut and polished diamonds that we see in the, in the big jewelry stores on our high streets. They'll tell you they're all conflict-free. It's an absolute lie. It's a fraud because... 20% of those diamonds, in value terms, are cut and polished in Israel, processed in Israel. And, but nobody has any way of telling if a diamond is... When you go into a, a jewelry store to buy a diamond, you can't tell where it was cut and polished where, or where it's from. Once they're cut and polished, you can't distinguish one from the other unless they're hallmarked, and most diamonds aren't hallmarked. And that's, that's, you're buying something that could be worth thousands and thousands of, of dollars or, or euros, and yet, you no idea where, the jewel, even the jeweler behind the counter has no idea where it was cut and polished. You can't distinguish one diamond from the other. Could you explain why Amnesty International, Global Witness, and then the other human rights organizations uh, aren't, why don't they seem to be wanting to press for more sanctions against Israel? It is very difficult to explain that. I have talked to some of these organizations, and they're focused on particular aspects of the diamond trade. Just recently, uh, in February, Human Rights Watch brought out a major report into the jewellery industry where they scrutinized the supply chains of 13 major jewellery in, in, uh, jewelers. But their scrutiny ended abruptly at the mine gate. They, they only looked at their, where they were getting the diamonds, the mining sector, and completely ignored human rights violations being funded by revenue from the diamond industry further along the supply chain as the diamonds are cut and polished and, and processed. Hmm. So it, 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 it was a major uh, loophole in, in, in their, a major failing in, in the report. And they, they gave Tiffany's top ranking, despite the fact that until last year, Tiffany's, the global iconic jeweler, was sourcing diamonds from the Benny's Diamonds Group Resources mine in Sierra Leone. But uh, in 2017, uh, very interestingly, they quietly uh, divested from the Diamonds Group following a BDS campaign which put pressure on them, exposing the links between uh, the Steinmetz Group, which had adopted a unit of the Gavati Brigade and uh, funded and supported them during the Operation uh, Protective Edge in Gaza when, they, when the Gavati Brigade was responsible for the slaughter of the Samuni family, the massacre of the Samuni family in Gaza. And yet Tiffany's continued to, uh, to buy diamonds from the Steinmetz Group and claimed they were conflict-free even though they, the Steinmetz Group had adopted a unit of the Gavati Brigade. And uh, what about your opinion about these solidarity, Palestine solidarity campaigns, BDS campaigns, and so on, uh, why they don't seem to be more focused on, uh, on blood diamonds? Well, this is something I've been trying to encourage groups to, to, to get involved in. And, and right now, I think that the most effective, the most practical and economically significant sanction uh, which would obliterate is Israel's impunity, would be to expose and isolate the Israeli blood diamond industry, which has been described as a cornerstone of the economy and as one of the main arteries funding the criminal Zionist regime. 
it, as I said, it generates a billion dollars per year for the IOF alone. And uh, so with the EU now chairing the Kimberley process and a meeting coming up in two weeks' time in Antwerp, it's the perfect opportunity to raise the issue and put pressure on our, our, our elected representatives in Europe to call for Israel to be expelled from the Kimberley process, just as Zimbabwe was expelled from the Kimberley process when government forces in Zimbabwe uh, killed uh, 200 miners in, uh, in 2008. Zimbabwe was subsequently expelled from the Kimberley process and uh, only in recent years got was back, allowed back in after they tidied up their act. But after Israel's recent slaughter in Gaza, they should not be allowed to sell their diamonds on the open market. It, 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 they should not be allowed to contaminate the market with, with these blood diamonds, which are funding gross human rights violations in Gaza on a daily basis. And even and in the West Bank as well. We heard this morning that another member of the Tamini family was shot and killed by Israeli forces in Ali Saba. Mm. Ali Saba. Yeah. Well, uh, Sean, I, I want to thank you very much for, for bringing this information to our attention. I think it's a particularly important time to uh, raise the issue of the blood diamond industry and, and the Israelis' involvement in it. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. We've been joined by Sean Clinton. Uh, he is uh, based in Limerick, Ireland, and he is uh, active with Palestine Solidarity Struggles. You can find uh, some of his articles at the Electronic Intifada and GlobalResearch.ca. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast on the website GlobalResearch.ca. While the U.S. comes to the defense of Israel, successfully blocking a call at the U.N. to condemn Israeli actions, other countries have been registering their opposition. Recently, Argentina announced it was cancelling a football World Cup warm-up match with Israel, apparently having yielded to pressure from its domestic population. To get some insights into the forces driving Israeli violence and where this is all headed, we got in touch with Yaakov Rabkin. Yaakov M. Rabkin is professor of history at the University of du Montréal and a founding member of Canada's Independent Jewish Voices. His recent books are A Threat from Within, A Century of Jewish Opposition to Zionism by Zed Palgrave Macmillan, and What is Modern Israel by Pluto University of Chicago Press. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Rabkin. My pleasure. So let's put the events of the last two months within uh, that historical context, which uh, you could speak to. Could you outline who is behind this Zionist project? I mean, what, and, and maybe speak about this, uh, the issues, the, the factors that have shaped the, this, this project that is Israel. The uh, Zionist project uh, is a political movement that emerged uh, in the end of the 19th century. Or to be more precise, uh, it uh, involved Jews at the end of the 19th century, because prior to uh, that time, the idea of ingathering uh, Hebrews into the Holy Land uh, had become rather popular among certain English-speaking Protestant denominations uh, in England and in North America. And this, uh, which we would call anachronistically Christian Zionists, these Christian Zionists uh, uh, got quite a bit of popularity 
particularly in Britain in the 19th century, with Lord Shaftesbury and uh, many other politicians, seeing an opportunity in creating, so to speak, a Jewish state in a strategically uh, very important region. However, till the very end of the 19th century, there were no Jewish takers for this project. Why? Because uh, the biblical prophecy that the Protestants interpreted literally according to what Protestants usually do, they have a direct, immediate uh, relationship with biblical text. Jewish tradition reinterprets uh, this biblical prophecy, these biblical prophecies, and the standard Jewish uh, attitude towards return to the Holy Land is one of messianic expectation, of messianic yearning, but essentially political passivity. What changed at the end of the 19th century as a result of uh, this Christian Zionist influence is that some uh, people of Jewish descent who were quite removed from the Jewish tradition, and that's why they embraced the Zionist idea, uh, like the, the Herzl and a group of German-speaking uh, intellectuals uh, in Vienna and in, in Germany, uh, they uh, created this movement with the first uh, Zionist Congress taking place in 1897 in Basel, Switzerland. And it's interesting also why it happened in battle Switzerland, because uh, it's a small, relatively small Jewish community, because they wanted to have this first Zionist Congress in Munich, but the organized Jewish community of Germany put pressure on the German government to forbid uh, such a meeting in Munich. It shows you how much opposition was generated to the Zionist idea from Jews, both assimilated and, of course, from more pious, more observant Jews. So this is the background. That's a Jewish, Jewish movement that began then. Uh, really was a movement of a few intellectuals, so to speak, generals without an army. But the foot soldiers of Zionism didn't come from Austria or from Germany or from France, for that matter. They came from the Russian Empire. And the importance of the Russian dimension is still uh, very great uh, because Jews at that time in the Russian Empire at the turn of the 20th century lived under uh, official discrimination. They could not move around the country. They had to live in a certain area. And uh, there was a lot of frustration. So that frustration took various ways of expressing itself. One of them was joining the Zionist movement. And even though the number of settlers from Russian Empire to Palestine was quite small, they played a crucial role in the creation of the Zionist project in Palestine and the political direction that it took. Uh, till today, all the prime ministers of Israel were either born in the Russian Empire or their parents were born in the Russian Empire. And their main idea was to occupy the land and create a separate, uh, a separate society, a separate economy, a separate state eventually, uh, uh, that would be a way of creating a new 
totally different society from the Jewish continuity as it existed then. So this is the background uh, of the Zionist project. Could you uh, explain that that the evolution, because as you've indicated in your writings, uh, there, there, the, the majority of Jews were opposed to Zionism in the beginning, and yet today it seems, uh, at least you know, looking in the whether it's a, within Israel or, or even in, in Canada, the United States, it seems as if uh, you know, people conceive Zionism as a response to the, uh, you know, the, the need to protect Jews from anti-Semitic uh, governments, be they Germany or, or wherever. How did we see that, that transformation in the popular imagination to the point where anti-Zionism is, is practically equated with anti-Semitism? Well, I think this is a tremendous success of the Zionist movement and later of the State of Israel to uh, conflate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. The late Abba Eben, a brilliant foreign minister of Israel, uh, considered it a very important objective to reach in order to strengthen Israel's position in the world, and I think to that extent uh, it has succeeded. Uh, the opposition uh, to Zionism was of two varieties, roughly. One was from Jews who wanted to be part of their society. And uh, when the Zionists came and said, well, you don't really belong here, you belong to a separate nation that should live in Palestine, that paralleled quite nicely the anti-Semitic message that Jews don't belong that they are alien, that they are pernicious alien element. And that's why Theodor Herzl, uh, the founder of political Zionism, uh, said very clearly in his diaries that anti-Semites will be our best allies and friends. So from for Jews who wanted to integrate into their society, Zionism was a threat. For religious, more observant circles, who actually till today are not Zionists, uh, uh, the Zionist project was uh, a profanation of Judaism, uh, a secularization of the biblical messages, a literal reading of it, which Jews never accepted. Uh, so for them, uh, the entire Zionist project was something to be rejected, and it's still rejected, because if you uh, see how the so-called ultra-Orthodox react to the Zionist state and, for example, to the law obliging them to go to the army, which they don't. Uh, there was a demonstration in Jerusalem a few years ago when one of my books came out in Hebrew in, in Israel. It so happened that there was a demonstration of half a million uh, Jews against military service, and they were all very observant, you know, in black and white uh, clothing. Uh, so this is the second part. Now, how did... It happened that today uh, most Jews accept the ultra-Orthodox, uh, support Zionism. Moreover, they see that their Jewishness is, in fact, support for Israel. Uh, many of them don't do anything other Jewish, you see. It became very clear that today a Jew can transgress the Sabbath and eat not kosher food and transgress all the other commandments and he would still be accepted as part of Jewish community. 
But if he, he or she criticizes Israel, that becomes really difficult. Now, how did it happen? Well, it happened in stages. Uh, many descendants of Russian Jews in North America, in particular, took control of Jewish organizations, which had been in the hands of German Jews who were quite opposed or at least neutral with respect to Zionism. So this Russian dimension also permeated Jewish communities in North America. Uh, and uh, then the Second World War happened with the Nazi genocide that exterminated millions of Jews. And that, uh, of course, affected uh, many people, including political leaders, who saw in the Zionist project a way of, so to speak, solving the Jewish problem. But the real support for Israel didn't begin before 1967, before the Six-Day War, when Israel uh, attacked its neighbors, occupied territories, and came out as a valiant, triumphant nation. Uh, uh, it's after that that uh, Jewish communities began supporting Israel, identifying with Israel, and that coincided with a very important educational project that was conceived in Jerusalem and carried out in practically all non-ultra-Orthodox communities around the world, that is to teach the centrality of Israel for Jewish identity. And this has become a reality. I think today the vast majority of non-ultra-Orthodox Jews in uh, North America, in France, uh, and elsewhere uh, identify with Israel as something that constitutes their Jewish identity. And my colleague from Tel Aviv University, Shlomo Sand, uh, caustically remarked that 100 years ago, if someone would say that a French Jew doesn't belong to the French nation, that person would be considered an anti-Semite. Today, if you say that French Jews do not constitute a separate nation but belong to the French nation, that would be considered anti-Semitism. That shows how the term anti-Semitism really was turned upside down, and uh, that happened to many terms in history, and uh, this is another concept that came to mean something totally different from what it was in the end of the 19th century when the term anti-Semitism was coined. So I'm wondering now, in the modern day, we have uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and it does seem as if the uh, the, the the rhetoric about you know protecting uh, the, uh, the the Jewish state and you know the enemies in Iran and elsewhere is is certainly upped quite substantially. I'm wondering if his prime ministership uh, does it represent a particular uh, turning point, or is this merely an expansion of a long-standing? Uh, uh, expansionist project? No, I think that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been quite effective, uh, incidentally, in mobilizing support of Christian Zionists in the United States uh, when he was uh, Israeli representative at the United Nations. Prime Minister Netanyahu, I think, represents the continuity of Zionism, the continuity of the Zionist project. And in fact, uh, Netanyahu is today to the left of his own government. He's definitely not the most hawkish member of it. Uh, what uh, he uh, 
has done, and I think that's uh, again a standard procedure, uh, he tried to solidify support for himself and for Israel by indicating that Israel always faces his existential threat. Uh, well, many political leaders have indicated or invented threats in order to solidify their support. Uh, so Netanyahu has done that quite successfully, and uh, particularly with Iran, uh, he opposed the treaty uh, uh, that was concluded in 2015 with, between the Six Nations and Iran, uh, and he succeeded. Uh, to a large extent, it was his work uh, that the United States uh, recently withdrew from that treaty. Uh, so I think that uh, Netanyahu is a true Zionist, uh, and also he positions himself very explicitly, more explicitly than others, as the the leader of the entire Jewish people, not just of the people of Israel who elected him. Uh, this is something new, uh, and that t- tends to blur distinctions between Jews in other countries and, and Israelis, which, of course, endangers Jews, because Jews are very often wrongly accused uh, for what Israel does, even though Jews around the world, however wealthy and however important, have no political influence in Israel whatsoever. But they become hostages of what Israel does and is. Uh, So uh, it's a win-win situation for uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, and he's been very very, very successful in uh, advancing this agenda. You mentioned Christian Zionism and uh, that being a factor in in some, uh, you know, countries like the United States. But, uh, you know, Zionist organizations and Christian Zionist uh, organizations, uh, they're a minority, even within the United States. And uh, it seems to me that uh, there has to be some other motivation, like for the United States, Canada, and other international players to to continue endorsing the Zionist project, or at least sort of looking the other way when we're seeing the kind of uh, violence that we've seen recently in Gaza. What, what, What are those factors that are contributing to the foreign um, support for the Israeli uh, actions that we're seeing? Well, let me, let me start by correcting what you just said. Uh, I don't think the Christian Zionists are a minority or a marginal group. They themselves claim that they are from 50 to 80 million people in the United States. Uh, I must remind your listeners that the number of Jews in the entire world is about 14 million. So we're talking about a much more massive support for Zionism from Christians than it is from Jews. And, of course, the uh, inauguration of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem included two prominent Christian Zionist leaders. That was clearly uh, a message sent back to the United States that President Trump hears them, and uh, is sensitive to their plight. Now, uh, of course, Christian Zionist does not explain everything. Uh, Much more important, in my opinion, uh, is the 
position that Israel has come to occupy as a purveyor of security know-how and security equipment, as a major source of defense material and high-tech uh, uh, surveillance technologies. So Israel has become an indispensable source of all that precisely because of the ongoing uh, oppression of Palestinians that requires Israel to become inventive, to test their new technology on Palestinians, and therefore their exports to a large extent consist of uh, high-tech security and military equipment and know-how. Uh, that is a very important factor that explains the impunity which Israel enjoys uh, in many Western capitals. Uh, another, I think, another important reason is that Israel is seen as an island of Western influence in the Middle East, uh, in Western Asia, and uh, this is a function that uh, the Zionist leaders uh, had cherished from the very beginning to be an island uh, in, as they saw it, in a barbaric region. Uh, so from, for all these uh, reasons, Israel is very useful uh, to, uh, to Western governments, and particularly in the larger context in which we live. And the larger context is that of a growing uh, gap between rich and poor, and that requires more sophisticated uh, methods of uh, crowd control, of oppression of population, of surveillance, and Israel is very useful as a source of that. So in the larger context of neoliberal economics and, and the growing frustration of people uh, around the world, including in Western countries, uh, Israeli means of controlling uh, population are very handy, very useful, and I think that's a niche that Israel occupies with tremendous success. Could you comment on the historic significance of the U.S. embassy move to Jerusalem? Well, I don't. I wouldn't ascribe to it historic significance. Uh, I think that it's a symbolic gesture that. Uh, sort of consecrates uh, U.S. recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I don't think that uh, it really changes very much uh, because uh, it had been clear from practically all the previous administrations in Washington for the last 20 years that uh, the U.S. stood behind Israel and uh, vetoed all uh, attempts to criticize Israel. So I think President Trump did something which is perfectly within the logic of U.S. attitude towards Israel, because the U.S. government, in a way, spoke two mouths on the one hand, two sides of the mouth. In the one, on one hand, it criticized the expansion of settlements in, on the West Bank, on the other, it provided Israel with huge amounts of support. 
So now uh, that hypocrisy is largely ended. And I think that President Trump, for all his uh, other failings, can be congratulated for being quite honest and direct in what he did. Now, given the powers that are backing the Israeli government internally and externally, the, the rise of the non-Jewish population within Israel and the success of uh, Palestine solidarity movements, where do you see the conflict heading? Uh, possibly a unitary Jewish-Palestinian state, uh, a two-state solution, or will Israel successfully conquer the Golan and, and continue to expand its territories? Well, that, that question should be put to profit, not to professor <laughs> of history. Uh, uh, Based on past say, trends, you say, might say. Sorry, I didn't hear Sorry, you. just like looking at uh, the, the, the current trajectory. Right. What I can see is the idea of a two-state, a Palestinian state and the Israeli state, that idea has been dead for quite a while, uh, because, simply because of the expansion of uh, Israeli control, settlements uh, around the West Bank. Uh, so what other ways? I think there are several scenarios, uh, but I think that looking for the future distracts us from looking at the present. And what we have in the present is the territory from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, entirely controlled by Israel, uh, with Israeli currency, with Israeli economy, and the Israeli army. Uh, so if we don't look at formalities, we could just see that Israel has become one state because it is one state, Palestinian, uh, Palestinian Authority or, or Hamas doesn't exercise much control of, over their uh, territory. Uh, any Israeli soldier, any 18-year-old recruit has more power than Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah. Uh, so, and we could see that in this recent uh, violence uh, of Israeli troops against Gaza. So I think that what we see today is a territory controlled by Israel in which some people have political rights and others don't. Some people have more economic privilege than others. So we see essentially a perpetuation of a situation that has existed since 1967 uh, and in fact had existed before. We shouldn't forget that uh, the Arab population of what became the State of Israel in 48 lived under military rule uh, for, I think, 15 years. So uh, what we see today is, in a way, a continuation of it. And uh, while the rest of the world, including you, uh, are questioning what is going to be the solution, uh, there may not be any solution. That may be just perpetuation of the current state, which is quite comfortable for Israel. Uh, it's certainly, today, Palestinians don't represent an existential threat. Uh, and uh, the, as I said, they're also a very useful uh, ground uh, for testing new weapons. So I don't think that Israel is looking for solutions. I think Israel looks rather for a continuation of the status quo. Mm. And uh, just a, a final thought about uh, what uh, the uh, the larger community, what sorts of activities or, or what sorts of uh, lobbying should they be uh, 
enacting in order to uh, to realize uh, a more uh, uh, just turn of events? Well, I think what uh, there is a tremendous democratic deficit in the Western support for Israel. In other words, governments support Israel, but the population doesn't support it to the same extent or doesn't support it at all. That is the case in Canada, incidentally, where the uh, position of the Canadian government on Israel is not supported by the population. However, I don't expect any government in the world to lose power because it supports Israel. It's not an electoral issue, so to speak. So what we see is that we have a, a many grassroots movements, including the BDS, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. We have demonstrations. Uh, we have uh, sometimes uh, cancellation of uh, football matches, as you mentioned in the beginning. Uh, so these are unpleasant uh, uh, events for the government of Israel and for the, I think for Israeli society. But I don't think it, at this point, uh, affects what Israel is and does. Uh, it actually provided Prime Minister Netanyahu at one point with the opportunity to say that the BDS is the existential threat to Israel. But honestly, uh, boycotting Israeli oranges uh, is important, but uh, no one is boycotting import of Israeli uh, high-tech military weapons, uh, and they constitute a lot more in the exports of Israel than the oranges. So I think for mobilizing support for Palestinians, for uh, sort of serious critique of Israel, these movements are important. So far, they have not changed uh, anything in the behavior of the Israeli government. And I would say that uh, I don't see in the future that they can um, the Israeli government is very strong. Israeli society is fully behind it. Uh, so, uh, and I think it's very important to understand that Israel is a democratic country, and what you see uh, in the behavior of the Israeli government and the Israeli army is what Israeli majority, or at least non-Arab majority, uh, wants. Uh, so, uh, some people say, well, the government... Benjamin Netanyahu is uh, betraying the ideals of Zionism. I, I don't think so. I think he is in a straight line from Ben-Gurion and on. And uh, the Israeli society, as I just said, uh, elects him and elects much more right-wing and much more nationalistic uh, uh, parliamentarians. So um, I think Israel in that sense is quite consolidated. I want to thank you very much, uh, Professor Ravkin, for sharing your thoughts and your expertise with our listeners. Thank you. All the best. We've been speaking with Montreal-based scholar and author Yakov Ravkin. Many of his articles are posted at the Global Research website. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.